Isn't God good? He is good indeed. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him. He is the Lord of creation. All things were created for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. He's the Lord of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. He takes first place. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself, to to turn from the status of enemy to friend, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. And you... Us, we, who were once alienated, hostile in minds, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled to the Father by in His own physical body of flesh by His death in order that He might present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach before Him. If indeed we continue in the faith, we remain faithful, steadfast, and stable, secure, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard, that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which, and here's our focus this morning, God has made us ministers. Do you feel like a minister? The word minister here is diakonos. You guys sound like a word we know? Deacon? You guys feel like deacons? Not the North Carolina kind, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> Wait, wait for us, in case you're wondering. We don't want demon deacons here, okay? We, we, we want uh, servants of the Lord. It's a, it's a great little word study. Diakonos. Dia, meaning through. Kanos, meaning dust or dirt. The idea, the word picture there is somebody who's willing to get their hands dirty. Somebody's willing to get their feet dirty. I heard Herb Hodges one time describe this word, and he said, all of us are deacons, all of us are ministries, all of us should be running through dirt so that it, brings a cloud behind us. He brought to mind the picture of, I don't know if you guys like westerns, but you remember how when the horses are coming, the dust billows up behind them, and you can tell the crowd's coming by the, by the cloud of dust behind them. We ought to be so set on serving God and serving for the benefit of His body that we kick up a cloud of dust in our trail as we, as we, as we minister and as we serve Him. We are ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're ministers of the gospel. We are servants. We have been set free. Last week, again, we, won't, we, we took enough time. This stuff is so much better if we keep it in context, if we understand the flow of what Paul's saying. We talked last week about our identity in Christ. A lot of times, Christians just kind of struggle and go from one crisis to the next, or one struggle to the next, or one problem to the next. We just kind of trudge through life, and that is not what God intends for us to do. And one of the reasons that we do this, we forget who we are. We forget what Jesus did when He saved us. And so there's some remembering and reflecting and understanding that we've got to participate in. The words that are most often used in Scripture that kind of encapsulate the salvation that we have in Christ are justification. We were guilty. He declared us righteous in His Son. It is the word redemption. We were slaves to sin in slavery. And He bought our freedom through the shed blood of His Son. It's forgiveness. We stood before God owing a debt we could not pay. And Christ paid that debt and He has forgiven us and washed us. We stood before God as an enemy and then He came and He reconciled us. He brought us together. We have Romans 5.1 
peace with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. We stood before God as a stranger, one outside, and yet He has adopted us as sons. He brought us into His family. We become heirs, joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's kind of a a thumbnail picture, if you will, of salvation. And each of those we need to reflect on. He is good. He is good. He is good. But if he's good, why do we struggle? (laughs) Our text this morning, Paul says, he made me a minister. And I rejoice, and I like that. The word rejoice here means rejoice. And we know what rejoicing looks like, right? Uh, When God told the the Israelites in in Malachi of his coming deliverance, he said, you're going to rejoice and it will be visible before others. You will be leaping about like a calf who leads the stable. You guys ever seen a, a, a young calf in the field? Uh, I don't know what you call it. Frolicking, galloping, jumping around. Uh, our rejoicing should be visible and can be and is when it's genuine. A, a type of visible rejoicing that serves as a, a testimony to the goodness of God. Uh, Keegan is back here. He's, I don't know, 15, 16, going on 30. Uh, but when he was a, a little bitty kid, we were watching him and, and taking care of him and, and he was very seriously walking ahead of us I and mean, I don't remember exactly the context but we were outside and he was kind of head down very intentionally walking ahead of us as a small kid and then all of a sudden it's like somebody lit a match underneath him and he just started skipping and jumping and running around uh, C.S. Lewis uses an example of a child being overcome by joy, just kind of surprised by joy, a a visible excitement, expression of rejoicing. And that's how Christians are characterized. Christians who are trusting in Christ, Christians who have learned contentment, people who realize our identity in Christ and what Christ has done, there is rejoicing, and the rejoicing does not come because there's a lack of suffering. Even though there are whole churches and whole denominations and whole crowds that say, if you come to Jesus, He'll solve all your problems. If you come to Jesus, He'll take all your pain away. If you come to Jesus and you have enough faith, all your, he, life becomes just as it should be before the curse. i got news for you. We live in a fallen world, and the Bible talks a lot about suffering. We think that sometimes once we come to Christ, Uh, As a friend of Jesus, a child of the King, we're taken out of suffering, we are blessed, we're protected, we're provided for, and yet, uh, and and that's kind of summarized, and I pick on this a good bit because it's just really bad theology, and yet it's really popular, but it's not that God gives you your best life now, you understand that, That, that's that's a lie. It's not true uh, if you define your best life as a life free of of problems, as a life with all the money you could ever have and all the vehicles and the biggest, nicest cars and no stress and no strain. That's not what God intends for us. As a matter of fact, you guys know this. We talk about this. Suffering is one of the main themes of the Bible. And this this is like a sales pitch, right? Suffering is one of the main themes of the Bible. Genesis begins with an account of how evil and death came into the world. Exodus describes Israel's oppression in Egypt, 430 years. Then they get deliverance, and then they rebel, and then they're 40 years in the wilderness, a time of trial and testing. The Psalms provide prayers for every circumstance and situation in life, but the most frequent prayers in the Psalms are for help 
in, in need and comfort in suffering. It's honest prayers. Describe the brutality of life and the injustice that we face in life just because of the circumstances around us. There are three Old Testament books, Job, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes, that have suffering as their main theme. There are two New Testament books that focus significantly on suffering. I would say three. <laughs> there are three. There's Hebrews, and there's James, and there's First Peter. And they focus on helping Christians face suffering and sorrows and trouble. Uh, Abraham, called by God, did he suffer? He did. Guys, we've been reading this in, in our, our earlier, a few months ago in our daily Bible reading. He suffered. What about Joseph? Did he suffer? He, he did. Moses, the deliverer chosen by God to set his people free. Did he suffer? He did. Elijah, the great prophet, did he suffer? He did. David, the king, did he, did he go through times of suffering? He did. Daniel, the faithful one, did he go through times of suffering? Of, of course he did. Jesus, the central person of the Scripture, the theme, the, the, the one that we are talking about, Jesus Christ is called the man of sorrows. And in our text, Paul, probably, arguably the most godly man in the New Testament, is suffering in a jail chained between Roman guards. And he could be bitter, he could be angry, he could be uh, complaining about his circumstance and his situation, but what does he say? You know we just got to the first word in this text, right? I'm rejoicing in my suffering. For your sake. I believe there are two things we need to learn from this. We'll go through them quickly, but it's important. Don't miss this. I don't know what you are been suffering, what you're going to suffer now, what kind of suffering you're going to face in the future. And by the way, there's a whole continuum here as far as light suffering, heavy suffering, suffering for the faith, suffering because of circumstances. Yeah, there's a whole continuum here. We're not going to go really deep in this today, but I do want you to understand a couple of things. Suffering is a means by which God brings us into deeper intimacy with Him. Suffering is a means by which God brings us into deeper intimacy with Him. Also, our suffering is not only to benefit our walk with Christ, but it is to benefit or to be a benefit to others. So the first thing, suffering is how God brings us into deeper intimacy with Him. Sometimes suffering is described as going through the fire. You know what that means? Going through the fire. Fire is pain. Fire is hot. Fire is destructive. And sometimes we just simply go through the fire. God promised Israel, He said, I'm going to bring suffering upon you appropriately in a just means to bring you to the point of, 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 of uh, reconciliation, of repentance. But I want you to know something. When you go through the fire, you'll not be burned and the flames won't kindle upon you. The suffering has a purpose, but fire can be very destructive. Uh, years ago, we lived in South Texas, and I had accumulated a fairly large brush pile. Unfortunately, I had placed the brush pile close to my neighbor's barn. And I was out there warning Stephen and some others about, uh, this is a story we, we <laughs> I've shared before. He's laughing, but... Uh, about how volatile fire can be and how you have to be careful. And I had a little matchbook. You guys know what I'm talking about. Not a box of matches, but just a little matchbook. And I said, man, this stuff, 
It's really dangerous. You can just strike that up and drop it in. And I struck it. And I dropped it on the pile. I said, and it'll just take right off. Thinking it won't take off that fast. I got news for you. It took right off. I'm talking this little flame all of a sudden became a fire. It became urgent. Now, I was the only one who recognized the urgency. (laughs) Stephen was there. And I said, Stephen, go get me a shovel. It was a shovel, right? Not a hose pipe. Yeah, go get me a shovel. Go get me. And, and so he begins. I don't know, how old were you? Young. Twelve. So he begins to go get me a shovel. Meanwhile, <laughs> this fire blazes. And I'm talking about it went from nothing to five alarm in a heartbeat. I'm like, Stephen, go get me a shovel. And buddy, full panic mode. This fire got hot, and I wasn't worried about the limbs burning. That, that was kind of the goal, the intent, the purpose. We wanted the limbs to burn. I didn't want the neighbors born to burn. And, buddy, we were right there. We were close. As a matter of fact, God improved my prayer life dramatically on that day. Uh, the wind ended up blowing in the right direction. We were able to get close enough so that our faces were red and, and, and uh, singed by the fire. Hair curled back a little bit to pull the limbs away. I want you to know, fire can be a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. When you go through suffering, sometimes the, the perspective is it's just a terrible thing. It's hot, it hurts, it's painful, it's a damage to me, it's a damage to others and places others at risk. But also, fire, when it's used rightly, doesn't consume, it doesn't burn up. Rather, it shapes, it refines, it purifies, it prepares It beautifies. Fire can mature things. Were it not for fire, we wouldn't have barbecue. There are benefits to fire when we experience the fire the way that we should experience the fire. When it's controlled fire, when it's under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, as we walk through the fires of suffering, there's a purpose here. What suffering does is it overwhelms us with our own sense of inadequacy. God uses suffering to drive us to cling to Him more closely. The Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a rock, a fortress, a firm defense, a sure refuge, and a help for the weak to bring home to us that we must learn to trust in Him, that we must learn to wait upon Him. God accomplishes His purposes in us and through us. And He matures us. This is what James 1 says. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various kinds of trials and temptation. Knowing this, that the testing, the fires that you go through, they produce something in you. They produce steadfastness. They produce endurance. And when you're at wit's end and you don't know how to survive in the fire and you need wisdom, you call out to God and ask for wisdom. And He gives to all men liberally and He upbraideth not. He does not argue with you. Peter makes this clear. First Peter is written to Christians in suffering. And he reminds them that even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of those who persecute you. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you and do it in a way that glorifies God with gentleness and, reflect, and respect. 
Paul suffered and he rejoiced in his sufferings because his suffering, in his sufferings, he learned that God's grace was sufficient for him. He had a thorn in the flesh. He had a problem. He had an issue that he said God, he called out to God, cried out to God to remove from him. And after three times, God said, I'm not going to remove it from you. This issue of suffering is one that's going to remain with you. And it's going to remain with you so that you may learn a truth that will stand you in good stead whether you're being beaten, whether you're being shipwrecked, whether you're being bitten by snakes, whether you're being stoned and left for dead. It will stay with you. It will be sufficient for you. Here's what you learned. My grace, God told him, is sufficient for you. This will keep you from arrogance. This will keep you from pride. This will keep you leaning into me, dependent upon me. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliot, the missionary who was killed on the mission field by those whom he went to share the gospel with. His wife is Elizabeth Elliot, godly woman. Uh, she wrote a book called Suffering is Never for Nothing. Not only did she lose her husband there, some years later she remarried, and just four years after she had remarried, her husband was diagnosed with cancer and he died. She faced a lot of suffering and loss in her life, and after all she had lost and endured, here's what she says, the deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering, and out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. Paul said, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my suffering to read into the text carefully, but in context. I rejoice in my suffering because it deepens my intimacy with God. But he says specifically, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Now we know he suffered for Jesus' sake. Hallelujah, he suffers for Jesus' sake. But now he says, I suffer for your sake. There are very few things that actually strengthen the soul against Satan's deception, like watching another believer go through horrible circumstances and do so with persevering faith. Do so with gentleness. Do so with trust and confidence in God. When you watch others who walk through the valley of the shadow of death with purpose and with joy in God, through the ups and downs of life, their faithfulness and endurance will inspire you, will encourage you and will serve as a testimony that what Jesus, is prom Jesus promises is actually true. Your suffering, God desires to use as a means of ministry. I want you to hear that. And I don't know what level of suffering you have, and most of us don't suffer a whole lot, frankly. Some do, and some suffer quietly, and some there's just stuff you don't know. And, and again, on the continuum, but I don't want to belittle anyone's pain. Here's what I want you to know. When you are suffering, when you go through challenges and trials and struggles and, and, and temptations and tests and all of these things that we face in life, the way that you deal with those is a ministry to those who see you. None of us lives to ourselves, Romans 14. None of us dies to ourselves. Whether we live, we live for the Lord. Whether we die, we die for the Lord. And how well we do in these circumstances becomes a ministry and a testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison for the gospel. Paul was chained between Roman soldiers. Matter of fact, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 1. We'll just turn back to the book before Colossians. Uh, and 
This is a, another letter that, that Paul writes in prison. Now the Philippians, he's writing to the church at Philippi, the Philippian believers. And you know they've been praying for them. He, in chapter 4, he commends them for praying for, the, for him. He says, thank you for your prayers on my behalf. But you know that they're thinking, oh no, there's our dear brother Paul, that great evangelist, our, the, the one who has shared the gospel with us and invested so much in us, who has the ministry of presenting the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. He's in prison. We need to pray for a change in his circumstances. We need to pray that he will be freed, that he can continue the ministry that he's got. And here's what, here's what Paul says. We'll just pick up in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, this is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. We'll just go through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, a praetorian guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Prison was not a detriment to Paul, was not a detour for, for Paul. While anyone might have been prone to pity him or to pray that he be removed from his circumstances, he saw his improvement in this, in, 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 he actually... He saw his, his, his experience and his suffering in prison as God's will in his life. He says that because of that, the gospel is being spread throughout the Roman guard, throughout the soldiers. Because of that, even believers who are not in prison are increased in, in, in their gospel witness. They're able to be more bold, willing to be more bold. On behalf of the gospel, his suffering was for the benefit of others. You see, suffering can can make you withdraw. Pain, struggles, opposition can make you bitter and complaining. They can make you isolate yourself from others. But whatever suffering God brings, whatever pain, whatever disappointment, whatever trial, however big or small, we want to be able to say with Paul, it has become known to all that my suffering is for Christ and is for your benefit. And I want to go back to the outline. I want to get back on track as far as what's in your worship guide. The the point that I believe in this first phrase is simply that focuses, gospel-centered ministry will include suffering, and it is a suffering that focuses on being a benefit to others. That's what Paul says in verse 24 when he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. I rejoice in for the sake of his body, that is, church. Now, I do want us to look at this next phrase because it gets a little confusing. Paul makes the statement, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Well, first thing I want us to note, guys, there's nothing lacking in Christ's death on the cross. There's nothing lacking in his ministry. That's obviously not what Paul is saying. Not that Christ needs some assistance to complete his task. When he was on the cross, he cried, it is finished. And in John 17, he's praying to the Father and he says, I have completed the task that you have set before me. He has finished the work. What Paul is saying, I believe, is simply that it's my turn to suffer. As Christ suffered, as a follower of Christ, now it's my turn 
to suffer. The New American Standard says, I do my share on behalf of his body. Here's a quote that I think is helpful that helps us to understand what's taking place in this small phrase, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. It's from Hendrickson, who uh, wrote a commentary on this passage of Scripture. He says, We should bear in mind that although Christ, by means of the afflictions which he endured, rendered complete satisfaction to God, so that Paul is able to glory in nothing but the cross, his work is complete, the enemies of the cross were not satisfied. They hated Jesus with an absolute hatred, insatiable, and they wanted to add to his afflictions. But since Jesus is no longer physically on this earth, their arrows, which are meant especially for him, strike his followers. It is in that sense that all true believers are in his stead, supplying what, as the enemy sees it, is lacking in the affliction which Jesus endures. Christ's afflictions overflow toward us. Christ indwells us. Jesus said, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Jesus said, they're persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It is the ongoing suffering that comes as being a representative of the gospel. The question is not, will you face problems, accusations, broken relationships as a follower of Christ? The question is how you will respond to them. And so when you respond to suffering, you need to focus on your response being an expression of ministry for the benefit of others. But there's also another component. When you do that, you're demonstrating Jesus' life in you. And this is the second point on your outline. If, you, if you're going to follow along with the, the way that I wrote it, gospel-centered ministry or Christ-centered living demonstrates Christ in you your sufferings in our flesh because of being a member of the body of christ because being indwelled of christ means simply that we take our turn to allow jesus to be jesus in me can i let's just talk for a minute <laughs> pastor to people it's important guys i want you to be attentive at the front here okay uh it's important. How many times in the New Testament, how many times do you see Paul or Peter or James or the writer of the Hebrews praying for people to be removed from the circumstances that they're facing? I hear you're in prison. I pray that God will be glorified you in prison. In prison. How many times? I've looked... And the only time that I can find that we're actually praying for people to be removed from their circumstances is in James 5, where we're told, if you're sick, call the elders of the church, that they can anoint with oil and lay on hands so that you can be healed, be removed from that circumstance. Other than that, all of the prayers are not for, that you be taken out of the circumstance that you're in, but that you experience peace in the circumstance you're going through. Does that make sense? Do you understand that when we suffer, when we go through hardship, when we go through difficulty, at whatever level, when we do so, having learned contentment, learning to trust, acknowledging our weakness, learning to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, and being able to sing in chains. You know what that means, to sing in chains? I love the story of Paul and Silas. 
beaten, imprisoned, hungry, abused, physically, wrapped up in chains. And what was their response? I think they were singing, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. I think they were singing Amazing Grace. Actually, whatever their equivalent of. They were singing hymns and songs and rejoicing, not in their circumstance, but in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in that circumstance with them. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that becomes a testimony. Have you ever heard that God will never give you anything you can't handle? Have you ever heard that? It's a lie. God will give you way more than you can handle. God will never give you anything He can't handle. Do you understand the difference? And so when we go through those times of suffering and we turn to Him, I can't tell you how many times. I was raised in a preacher's home. I like preachers. Uh, I like PKs. I like MKs, uh, missionaries. And some of my favorite people uh, in the world. And, and, and I was raised in a pastor's home. And... and, and I got to see on the inside some of what it was like to be a pastor. Dad protected us from a, a good bit of it. And got to see what, what mom's life was like. Uh, she diagnosed with cancer, uh, had cancer treatments and surgery, and God delivered her from that. And her attitude as she walked through those days. Dad, as we went through some really difficult times, uh, basically refocusing some congregations early in his ministry on the gospel and on the truth of God's word and how he would come under attack. And I can, I can tell you some of the stories that he went through. A lot of times, preachers' kids have two extremes in how they respond to their dad being a pastor of a church. One is they become a pastor. That was my my role. Uh, another is that they flee as far from that as they possibly can. You guys know the worst kids are the preacher's kids, right? Mine are an exception. Mine are the best, all right? But the worst kids are the preacher's kids. And some of that simply because of what they see and behaviors that they see under the uh, guides of Christianity. I have a minister's friend who told me one time, she said, I'm not coming back to... Uh, to your church, I, uh, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. I, I don't want to be uh, part of that experience anymore. But can I tell you something? When I saw the struggles that my dad faced, it really made me think, I don't want to do this. But when I saw the way that he responded and his trust in God and his commitment to preaching the truth and standing on the truth of God, and God's provision for him in what were very difficult circumstances, I thought, that is what I want in my life. You see, we get to rejoice like calves let out of the stall, frolicking across the field in our sufferings because it deepens our intimacy with God, but it is for the benefit of others. That they can see what we see. Jesus being Jesus in us. Jesus being our strength and being our sufficiency. Paul said, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In my body I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now why in the world would he do that? Because it was appointed to him. He was placed, appointed, sent as a steward. He was a appointed a minister, a diaconos, a, 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 and given 
a stewardship by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a gospel-centered or a Christ-centered ministry, by the way, is one that's assigned to us by God. That's really the third point on your outline. I want to just kind of look this up really quick. Gospel-centered ministry is appointed by God. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given for me to you. And I'll I'll close with this, and we'll pick up there next week because there's a, some other characteristics of, of having a Christ-centered or a gospel-centered life in the church. But here's the thing. You remember how Colossians 1 started? Paul, an apostle, sent one by the will of God. Paul, doing what I'm supposed to do. Paul, called right where I'm supposed to be. Paul, in the, in the position, in the responsibility that God has given to me. Paul, here, saying, I have been appointed by God, as a steward, as one who administers His work. And here's something I want you to know. We, in Christ-centered, gospel-centered ministry, as the children of God, as a demonstration of being reconciled to the Father, have a role to play for the benefit of the body of Christ and for the benefit of the spread of the gospel. Now, we'll explore this more, but I want you to know something. You've got a ministry You've got a role, you've got a duty, a responsibility, a privilege, a place. We'll look further into Romans 12, and we'll look further into 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll look further into Ephesians chapter 4. But if your concept of Christianity is occasionally going to a church worship service, singing songs, putting something in the plate, enduring a sermon, and then leaving and getting to the restaurant as quick as you can, and that's the extent of your Christian life, you've got a problem. That is not how the Bible describes Christianity. It's not only Sunday morning, it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's on the job, it's in the store, it's with your family, it's with your sphere of influence. There is a place for you to serve and a means by which you are able to do it through His power that works mightily within us. And I know that we spent basically the whole sermon this morning talking about the first few verses, first few words of the first few verses. But isn't this good news? Is he good? Let's do that a little bit more enthusiastically. Is he good? He is good indeed. He's good because he's reconciled us. He's good because he's forgiven us. He's good because he's washed us. He's good because when we walk through the rivers, we're not overcome by the waters. He's good because when we walk through the fires, the flames won't kindle upon us. Because He is the Lord our God. He's redeemed us. He has called us by His name. And we are His. So in your experiences of the week, sufferings great and small, inconveniences or life-ending pain, may God be glorified. May you suffer in a way to minister to the body of Christ. May you suffer in a way to bring glory to Him in all that you experience, knowing His goodness. Father, I thank You that You're good indeed. I thank You that You have redeemed us and called us and made us Your own. I thank You that You have forgiven us and restored us and made us new. I thank You that You certainly give us more than we can handle so that You can handle it on our behalf. I pray, Father, that we will be more and more and more rejoicing, certainly less complaining, certainly less bitter, certainly less 
dour, if you will. And yet let's be more filled with singing, filled with praise, filled with music, because you are good. And we walk in your goodness. In your name I pray. Amen.